Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. We are concluding our series through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which, is, which is kind of exciting. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we've come to an end of what we've been looking at over the last several weeks, actually since the beginning of the year. And uh, Jesus being the teacher that he was, uh, this portion of text is really a summarization of all that he's been talking about. It's, we're coming to the end of this most famous of all sermons, not only recorded in the Bible, but probably like throughout the entire history. And because it's a, a summarizing passage for the, for the whole sermon, it's therefore also a summarizing uh, sermon for the whole series. So what we're going to be doing today is bringing together all that we've been talking about as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which means if you're new and you're here today visiting for the first time, you picked a great week to come. It's a, it's a Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell. And then for those of you guys who have been coming uh, for, for any length of time or even from the beginning, oh, there's a harvest here uh, because we reflect on as we understand the Sermon on, on its whole. So here's what Jesus is saying here, it seems to me, in this text. I want to kind of state it out front and then kind of unpack it as we go, as we go uh, th- through the text. It seems to me, here's what he's saying. Here's the mark of a true Christian, that they base their life upon, that they build their life on him and his teachings. Okay? The true mark of a Christian or a true mark of, of a follower of his is one that builds their life on him and his teachings. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, duh, or uh, isn't that obviously the case? Isn't that pretty straightforward? I want you to especially lean in today because what Jesus goes on to show here in this metaphor is that this is the true mark of his follower, that we build our life on him and his teachings, but we can very easily, it is very easily possible that we think we're doing that and not be. So the metaphor he's giving here as he closes out this text, uh, this sermon, is the, um, the metaphor of the wise and the foolish builders. Okay, there's these two guys who built houses, and, and so Jesus is talking about two different types of people. And in verse 24, he's saying both have heard the words of Jesus. Okay, um, here's what really struck me this week as I was reading this text. Um, both of the houses look exactly the same as far as Jesus is talking about. When he's comparing two groups of people, the, t- the houses that they're making, it's not as if he's saying about one group of people, this guy, he went out and he built an Atherton-style house. Okay, if you're, if you're new to the Bay Area, Atherton is basically the Beverly Hills of the Silicon Valley. I mean, I remember the first time I drove through there, I felt like I was in Jurassic Park. It's like all these like huge gates. And you know, I remember actually going to a, a modest house in Atherton. I got to visit a modest house in Atherton. It was a mansion. I kept looking around for uh, you know, a butler to come out and take my orders. But anyways, he's not saying, you know, one person he built, he built an Atherton-style house, and another person he built, you know, a tent in shambles. He's saying it's the same thing. So what is Jesus saying here? What's it about? It's not about the house. It's about the foundation in which they're building on. Uh, that's the difference. The wise person built on the foundation that's the rock. The other the foolish guy built on the foundation that's the sand. It's worth considering here that Jesus then is not comparing good people from bad people. Okay? The house is the same. On the, to the naked eye, it looks the same. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to compare good people and bad people. I'm not going to compare, I'm not, he's not comparing moral people from immoral people. He's not comparing people who go to church and pray from those who don't go to church, those who don't pray. He's been saying this throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. If we've been paying attention, 
For instance, when he talked about uh, going in, like my followers, when, when you pray, I want you to go into secret, find a little closet, shut the door, and pray. And your father who sees what you're doing in, un, in, in, in secret will hear you. Okay, he says, but you, you pray this way. He's not saying, okay, I don't want you to be like these other people who don't pray and you actually pray. When he's comparing, he says, no, they're praying, but when you pray, do it in secret. Or when he's talking about giving to the needy, he's not saying, unlike these folks over here, I want you to actually give to the needy. What did he say if you were here? He's saying, no, but when you give, give in such a way that your left hand and your right hand don't even know that it's happening. He's not comparing bad people, good people. In the text immediately preceding the one that we're looking at today, Jesus says it really bluntly. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and look at verse 21 of chapter 7. Listen to this. It's chilling how Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a chilling thought. Jesus is saying, Not everyone who thinks they're Christian are according to Jesus, in fact, Christian. And it's interesting to me that he stresses the fact that everybody who would say, Lord, Lord, what's, what's up with that repetition? Like, why don't he just say, not everybody who calls me Lord will not be in heaven. Uh, whenever you have a re- repeating of a, of a name, especially as you look across the accounts in, in all the scriptures, it is an extreme form, an extreme expression of intimacy. You know, Mary, Mary, Jacob, Jacob. Jesus is saying, People will come to me at the end of it all and say, Lord, Lord. And he's saying in, in very chilling words, there will be folks that say this, and yet say that they've been following me, but they haven't been. To use the text that we're looking at today, it's they had been building their houses on sand. Uh, when I was in Atlanta the week before last for, for the conference, it was a very eye-opening experience for me. I grew up in the Bay Area my whole, my whole life, spent two years overseas in China. But in the United States, the Bay Area, California is kind of what I know. And in terms of like Atlanta and the South, in terms of like spiritual climate, in terms of, di- in, in terms of differences, I don't think there can be much more as far as differences go between the Bay Area and like the South. In the South, most folks there say, hey, I'm a Christian. Most folks, like, that's, that's part of the deal. I remember when I was there and people found out that I was a church, uh, a pastor of a church plant, a church startup, and people were like, you're planting a church where? San Francisco? I might as well have been going to North Korea as far as, now, I'm, I don't mean, I'm not knocking the culture. It's a wonderful culture. It's a wonderful people, but my point here is the spiritual climate is just completely different, Okay. It really struck me then that while I was there, uh, I got to, it really struck me how much of a heart the lead pastor of the church that I was visiting, our partner church there, has a heart for people who are cultural Christians. That's the word that he uses, cultural Christians. I got to hear him speak any number of times in any number of different settings. So for instance, I got to hear him on Sunday with his congregation uh, speak to them. I got to hear him speak in a conference in a breakout room with this large group of folks. I got to even hear him speak to a group of pastors. And by a group, I mean actually about 400, 500 pastors. And every single time, every single message, I heard him say, now some of you guys, you're here and you've been going through the motions. Christianity to you is doing good things. It's going to church, to the group of pastors, serving for him. Saying this to a group of pastors. But friends, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is it is nothing that we can do on our own. It is everything in what he has done for us on the cross. He's saying that to pastors. And then you'd say, 
today you can start following him, give your life to him, to pastors, let alone his church. Why was he doing this? Why was this so important? Was well, as a pastor in the South, he's especially aware that folks who go to church, say their prayers, volunteer from time to time, they might not get the understanding of what Jesus is ultimately all about, and that is he has made the way. And if anything apart from Jesus, we are building on sand. It won't last. Um, why not? Because, because it's clear that anything that we try to do on our own, as far as the Bible's concerned, is, will not earn our way back to God. Um, here's another way of thinking of this. It almost seems to me then that what Jesus is, is actually comparing between two people is the Christian and the religious person. Do you see that? Somebody who's just saying, I got to earn my way. I got I to do what's right or, or God's going to get me. And the one who knows what God has done for them in Christ. Now, where do I get that? The in Christ part. Um, that, of course, is where Jesus is talking about the foundation that is the rock. We actually just sang about. We'll sing about again. Um, Jesus, in verses 24 and 25, talks about this foundation that is the rock. It is really uh, interesting to me when I, when I was doing my study this week of how many people are actually and have been over the 2,000 years since Jesus said this, both in his day and even today, how, people, how many people are offended at the words Jesus is saying here in this text? Because he is making such an audacious claim, people are saying, how dare he say that when he's talking about the rock? Now, if you do a short little word study at, at, at in the Bible about the rock, you'll see that the Bible actually uses the word the rock um, as a metaphor over and over and over and over again, just all the time. And it's always saying the rock, the mighty fortress, our refuge, our strength, our firm foundation. And when is it, what is it always referring to? God's people's foundation, specifically in God himself. God is the rock. Uh, if, you ha- if you want to look at a couple of these these thoughts, I mean, there's so many. I found at least 20 doing an initial thought on, uh, study on this word. But Psalm 18 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? Isaiah 28, prophesying 700 years before Christ, talking about him. So this is what the sovereign Lord says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Psalm 62, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then finally, uh, in another prophecy, this time about a thousand years before Christ, in Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's therefore no wonder the crowds had the response that they did. If you look at verses 28 and 29, after Jesus rounded up this sermon of sermons, it says, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You know, it's interesting, back in Jesus' day, it was commonplace for all the main teachers, all these itinerant teachers, to cite other famous teachers to gain credibility with their audience. That was the practice back then, is they would say, you know, so-and-so teacher said this, and so now I'm going to speak to you. That's what they would do. Have, if you've been here through the Sermon on the Mount, has Jesus ever said, Hey, and you know what, as so-and-so teacher has said, Jesus hasn't not only just, well, there's too many negatives here, he, only, he hasn't just not done that, he has also won up the prophets of old in terms of his authority. When the, when the scriptures talk about the prophets and what they came to do and how they came to speak, what did they say to get incredibility? 
They said, thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. I'm getting ready to tell you what God said. Listen up. But Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount didn't even do that. What was Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He was saying, you've read that it says, don't murder. You know that Ten Commandments, you know, one of those Ten Commandments that God gave you? you? You've heard it said that don't murder, but I tell you. I mean, it's like, what? Jesus was he's, he's who would make such an audacious claim to put themselves on level footing as God himself, the rock, our firm foundation, Jesus Christ, who is God. Uh, And so Jesus says we are to build our lives upon him and his teachings. And whatever we do that's based on him and what he has done will last forever. Just to press this even, even further down, uh, you know, when Jesus talked about the, the very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount, do any of you guys remember? We talked about it a couple times throughout. If you were here from the beginning, what was the very first thing he said? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about this. Blessed are those, Jesus was saying, who come before God saying, man, I am poor. I am spiritually bankrupt before you, God. The way we put it is, you know, oftentimes in our culture, or we'll even think, maybe our grandma taught us growing up, that the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. But what Jesus was saying when he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he was saying, actually, it's not God helps those who help themselves, but in fact, God helps those who understand they cannot help themselves. Jesus has been saying this from the very, very beginning, that a true follower of of, of his will base their life upon him and what he's done for them. And so now we live out of that. One more thought here before we consider what does this look like. Jesus himself did a lot of amazing things, wouldn't you say? A lot of amazing good works. In terms of building a house, he was building the Atherton-type house. Actually, that doesn't even compare. He was building a mansion of mansions. And if we were to compare our good works and our building, our house, to his, it would be like the, t- t- you know, the, the tent that was just barely hanging on. Okay? He was out there loving folks. He was caring for the poor. He was caring for the lame, the disabled, who back then especially society just discarded. He cared for the widowed. He would get into dialogue and love people who came to try to trap him. He wouldn't just explode on them and say, you idiots. He'd say, guys, you don't understand God. You need to... He was just constantly loving. And in the face of injustices, he'd step up. God, it, it, as far as Jesus building a house, he was doing amazing things. But here's my point. If he had never gone to the cross, all of those amazing things would have been for nothing. Do you see that? For the lame man that he healed, for instance, would have, yes, walked again, I don't know how many more years in his life he had, 20, 30 years, he would have walked, but then he would have passed away. Or the blind man who received sight. Boy, that would have been pretty sweet to receive sight in, your li- in, in, in the second part of your, of your life. That would have been a sweet deal. Jesus, thank you. But he would have passed away, and where would that would have left him? The cross changes everything. It is the firm foundation. Jesus himself and the work that he did is the rock, 
our firm foundation. And we build our life on him, all those things change into place. For instance, because Jesus went to the cross, now the lame man will be beside Jesus at the end of the day and say, Lord, thank you for healing me back then, but really that doesn't compare to what you've done for me. And dying for the, on the cross for the forgiveness of sins that I might have eternal life in your name. And that is what we are called to do as his followers. We are to build on that. We are called to build. Remember how Joel, a couple weeks, talked about it? He said, you know, uh, it's not, you know, our behavior uh, is changed out of an outflowing of what he has done, what he's completed for us. The religious man is building on the sand. They build based out of insecurity and based on things not being firm in their foundation, but, but if true followers of his will build on the only thing that will last forever, that is Jesus and what he has done. What does that look like? What does that look like? Jesus here in verses 24 and 25 puts it pretty straightforward. He says, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. The one who follows him and builds the house according to what Jesus has done will build on things that last. What are the things that he says, you've heard, you've heard my words? That is all the Sermon on the Mount leading up to this. You know, that, the, that we would, for instance, love our enemies. That we would love our enemies. That we would not judge. And Jesus says, when we do these things, we are becoming the light of the world. A light that when we do our good deeds, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When we are loving others, when we are loving even our enemies, Jesus says, what are you doing more than others? Remember, that was just a random little verse. If you were here on that day, for what it's worth, that's chapter 5, verse 47. It seems like a, a small little verse. What are you doing more than others? But actually, what biblical scholars show us in, in the original language is actually that's a key verse for the whole sermon. Everything kind of hinges upon it. If you understand what I've been doing, Jesus is saying, you won't help but do more than others. That word is actually extraordinary. You won't help but live an extraordinary life. Now, how's that different from the religious person who's doing a good job, who's maybe not, you know, maybe who's loving, who's giving to the needy? Jesus has been talking about this the whole time. It's a perspective shift. It's a motivation shift. It's based on what God has done for us, and in him we have life. If we are seeking him and trying to build on the sand, it's like the religious person. We're trying to do it in our own strength. If we're trying to do it in our own strength and earn our way to him, gain favor with him, that will not last. But if people see within us that we are living based on what God has done, that will last forever. And I think you guys know that. I mean, for a lot of us, I think this is, that's our story as Christians. Maybe we saw in, someone, in another Christian, oh my goodness, they're living a life from the core to love others because that's the way the one who loved them is helping them love. Maybe we don't make that connection right, right away, but it's a far cry from the things that Jesus was talking about where if we try to do it in our own strength, it leads to hypocrisy. When we judge, we should really be judging ourselves if we understand what God's done for us. And we shouldn't just love those who love us. We should love those, our enemies too because what's the gospel? Jesus died for us when we were enemies. So we start to live this way, and out of this, we are building on the rock, on who Jesus is, and all of that will last. Um, so he calls us to put into practice what he's done out of an overflow of what he's done for us. And here's the thing I love about the Sermon on the Mount, as I love about all the Bible. And if you've been coming here, you've heard me say this. It ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount, it, Mount is not about you and me. 
I mean, there's teachings here for us to wrestle with and for the Lord to work in us and, and to make us more like Him as we love others and we look outward. But ultimately, it's not about that because we fail at that more times than we would care to admit. It's ultimately about Him and what He's done for us. For instance, when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is, is, per, is perfect, back in chapter 5, the one who said that perfectly satisfied that requirement in Jesus. The one who taught don't judge is himself the judge and was judged by God. The one who came saying, you've heard it said, don't murder, murder, but I tell you, don't even get angry, was himself murdered at the hands of angry men for our sake. The one who said, seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness, gave us his righteousness by following, by seeking God's will for him and going to the cross. The one who said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, gave up himself the heavenly treasures for the sake of the earthly treasures that is you and me. The one who said, give to the needy, made himself needy to give us everything. The one who said, love your enemies, died for us when we were yet his enemies. The God who said, you must bear fruit, is himself the root and the vine, and elsewhere says, come to me that you may bear fruit. And finally, the God who said, build your house on the rock, is himself the rock, our chief cornerstone, and our very firm foundation. The Sermon on the Mount, like the rest of the Bible, ultimately is to point us to Jesus. And to that extent, through us, as we build our houses, to point others to Jesus. So the thought here for us today is, if, first of all, if you're here today and you have never received what Jesus has done for you on the cross, dying for the sake of of your sins, uh, the gospel invitation, the good news of Jesus is this, to all who believe in him, to all who receive what he's done for us, he gives the right to become children of God. You can receive that today. If you'd like to do that, you can let us know either with the card that you have, the connection card, or you can see me afterwards. We'd love to pray for you, maybe give you resources, that'd be helpful. But that implicitly is the starting point. It's an invitation to making God your rock in Jesus, his, your firm foundation. And then if you are a follower of his, we love because God first loved us. How can you be building your house on the rock? In what ways? Maybe the angle you and I need to think about this today is we've been building on the sand in this area or that. You know, as we look across the Sermon on the Mount, we see all these thoughts, all these teachings, and we say, you know what, I like this one. I like the don't judge one. I like the, uh, you know, give to the needy one. But this one over here, the love your enemy one, boy. With my coworker right now, I'm just not so sure. I'm just not so sure. That's building on sand. Or in any other ways, you know, Jesus talks about murder, adultery, not just murder, but getting angry, adultery, not just the act, but, but looking lustfully, not devaluing the person in that way. There are many other different ways. Maybe we're building our, our house on the sand in this way. Jesus is saying, that's not a lot. We get, let's turn that over and give to him. How can we build on the foundation of Jesus? That's our prayer, by the way, at, as a church here at Current. I love this verse when Paul, the first church planner of all time, he says, I have resolved to know Christ and him crucified. If there's anything we want to do here is we want to build what we can on Jesus. And to the extent we start to veer off that, we want to say, you know what, Lord, help us back to that. As a church, as families, as individuals, how can we build on the rock of Jesus?
Let's pray.